Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Fertility and Sterility On Air podcast. I'm Pietro Bordoletto, and we are coming to you live from the 2023 ASRM meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana. And today's podcast episode is a special one because it is a joint podcast with the folks from the AGL and the Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecology. We're going to be talking today about hysteroscopy as a tool for the management of early pregnancy loss. And we have a panel of experts, people who have done this in their own practice, people who treat patients who have had complications from traditional early pregnancy loss surgical management techniques and we're hoping to evangelize a little bit about why we think this technique may be helpful in certain groups of patients. Today on our panel we have Dr. Chuck Miller, a reproductive endocrinologist, minimally invasive surgeon and former president of the AGL. We have Dr. Katie Coyne, a reproductive endocrinology fellow at the University Hospital in Cleveland and a surgical scholar track member. And then my old mentor, Dr. Samantha Pfeiffer, reproductive endocrinologist, reproductive surgeon at Weill Cornell. Hi, everybody. Hello. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Uh, we're here early at 8 a.m. just outside the expo hall before things get um, up and running. So thank you guys for being here. I want to start by going to you, Chuck. You were the okay. first one who turned me on to this idea of hysteroscopic management of early pregnancy loss probably a handful of AAGLs ago. I sat in one of your sessions. You talked about why you were doing this and why you felt it was important. Can you give us a bit of the history of kind of where this idea came up? Were you the first one to think of it or were people doing it before you and it fell out of favor? Well, there has been, Pietro, there have, have been people who looked at, at hystero, hysteroscopy to evacuate products simply to get better visualization, better uh, ability to identify karyotypes to look for abnormal chromosome events. Um, we got the idea as I began to do these, uh, I, I got the idea that, that we could really do something and evacuate under direct visualization and would have less adhesive disease. So not only were we accomplishing things from a standpoint of better chromosomal identification, but at the same time, we would, we would be able to reduce risk of adhesions. And now, over the years I've, I've, I've done this, I have yet to have a patient with post-op adhesions. It, it, my hypothesis was correct. Katie, from the, the, I think the adhesion perspective makes sense to a lot of us at face value. You're minimizing this blind thing that is still happening to the uterus in 2023, which face value is just crazy. There are no other areas in medicine where people are doing blind procedures. And right. sure, ultrasound guidance has, adds a little bit of guidance, but it's still a blind procedure. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about this contamination for maternal karyotype. Because you said, Chuck, that this was kind of the first kind of innovation, like right. let's do this to try to minimize contamination. Explain to us a little bit about how contamination happens at the time of DNC and why this approach may reduce that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. If you're doing a blind DNC, you're getting all the cells in the endometrium and the gestational uh, products. So 
of course, if you have a directed um, <clears throat> procedure with the hysteroscopy, you know that you're just getting that gestational sac. And then, like you mentioned, you're also able to visualize, which is key, because then you can add that to the information that you get. Um, and then, again, you avoid the contamination by having it be directed. And Sam, in your mind, are there is this a technique that you think is for all patients with pregnancy loss, or do you think there's a certain group of patients that you see that stand to benefit the most from this kind of technique beyond trying to reduce maternal cell contamination? Interesting is when you see people with adhesions after a blind DNC, the adhesions are often in the lower uterine segment, mm -hmm. and that's not where the pregnancy usually is implanted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the pregnancy comes out easily, but then I think there's aggressive curatage, if you will, in the lower uterine because that's often where they are. Once the fundus has contracted down and you can't get back up in there, you're futzing around in the lower segment. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, whatever. But I think that, so it's funny that the, the complications we see don't appear to be directed. Pregnancy was located, so clearly it's an iatrogenic issue. So I think that's one issue. The other thing, I think you can get the pregnancy out without damaging the lower uterine segment. Um, but the other thing is in... Um, more advanced first trimester pregnancies, it's really hard to do a morselation in a 12-week fetus. Yep. And that's just, it's really difficult right. because you're really seeing. So I think an earlier pregnancy, plus the, the bigger pregnancy, you have to contend with bony parts and that, that mm -hmm. it really is difficult to address that. So I think that earlier gestations are well suited to this technique. Tell us about a case that you told me about uh, recently where you weren't managing an early pregnancy loss, but you were assisting a colleague in the family planning service to manage an ongoing early pregnancy with this technique. Yeah, we had a, a difficult case of an individual with a unicornuate uterus and a sigmoid neovagina, and you couldn't visualize cervix at all. And um, the only way you could identify the opening into the uterus was hysteroscopically. And we couldn't dilate the opening into the uterus, so we had to use a um, six millimeter instrument to do pregnancy termination at 12 weeks. Um, and we couldn't get the seven millimeter instrument to dilate the opening because you couldn't hold on to anything to effectively dilate it. So, I mean, it, it took a, a, a long time because it was a pregnancy we were terminating millimeter ice yeah. and that was gruesome yeah um it did it did work but there was a excess volume of saline absorbed mm -hmm. time so and um i mean it was effective um but i think that earlier pregnancies are probably better suited to yeah. this technique the one way we've gotten around the later pregnancies is of course this was your case was an ongoing pregnancy, but where I've been able to do 10 to 12 week uterus uh, gestations is by giving them some time, giving them some time from the time of I of of that we realize the patient has indeed miscarried. We give them anywhere from seven to 10 days. We keep them on on uh, medication generally the entire time, but. By that time, there is some absorption, and it makes the case a little bit easier. The volume's smaller for volume's reception. Volume's smaller, and, and there's been some autolysis, and, and, and it becomes easier. 
That would be, exactly. Yeah, but that wasn't your case. <laughs> this was failed was medical management, wow. and it just, it was... Has to come out somehow, and this was the best technique. Exactly. Yeah. Tell, you, you mentioned something about kind of the, the visual aspect of this being difficult for the operating room staff. I imagine in a, a live pregnancy with a FH, that's tough, but I imagine in even some of these early losses, there's a visual component to this that's you're now introducing to not only you, but your staff. How do you have that conversation with your staff when you're going to be doing an early pregnancy loss or an ongoing pregnancy where you're visualizing the procedure? Do you, do you debrief with your team beforehand, set expectations for what they're about to see? You select who is and isn't in the room because I know these things can be sensitive subjects. I mean, ours was sort of a, we're in here, we can't do what we intended to do. What are the options we have? And so it was sort of like, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. There's no plan B. There's no plan B. <laughs> Plan B was laparotomy in a person who's had multiple surgeries and bowel surgeries and bowel reanastomosis and all this sort of stuff. So not great. And I have to do this now. So, you know, and everyone, anyone who doesn't want to be here, please leave. Right. Um, but this is what has to be done for the health of this patient. I think we do things similarly. Um, we, have a, we have ongoing teams both in the hospital as well as in my office when I'm doing most of these cases. And I, I think when, when uh, we talk about this, we talk about the advantages of what we're able to gain mm -hmm. with this technique. Uh, that doesn't take that initial, that it, it is, it, it's hard for me. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah, but, sad. you know, what's the, the bigger goal? And, and yes. up against a wall, you know, this has to be done for medical reasons. We're here. So I think it's tough, but I think also, you know, certainly, awareness of what the case is going to be, those who are, would be, have difficulty with it should not be in the room echo, and that's allowing, everyone knows what's going on. So I think you're self-selecting your staff. Right. And Chuck, you do a lot of this in the office. These patients are typically awake? Are they no. receiving sedation in the office setting to be able to do this? Yeah, well, like, like all of us, I have the advantage of, of doing IVF. So we're working with our, with our nurse anesthetists and they're doing these cases with me. I, I think it would be very difficult to do these in the awake patient, cool. at least yeah. some of the later ones for sure. Yeah. Walk us through what the procedure actually looks like, Katie. I know at the University of Hospitals in Cleveland, you guys do this routinely. And as a mm -hmm. fellow, I can imagine what a wonderful experience is to kind of gain the skill set. Yes. What does is, what is the technique at your center look like? So we also use anesthesia, and again, we'll just um, schedule them right after our retrievals. So we have the anesthesia team, um, so it's done under sedation, which is great. And then, um, you know, the same good proper technique applies with hysteroscopy. You don't want to overdilate. You don't want to dilate past the internal oz um, so that you don't have that efflux of fluid and that so you don't disrupt anything within the uterine cavity. And then once you're in and have good visualization, actually a technique that we've been using with good success is injecting vasopressin through the operative um, channel, you can advance a small like labry needle um, and then inject right near the sac with some vasopressin. That helps with that initial flash of blood that you anticipate that you're gonna get with your first bite with the tissue morse later. Um, and then the, the goal is just to move quickly because you anticipate that your visualization is gonna be covered um, with that flash of red once you start. So um, just try to move quickly remove the entire sac. And then, you know, once you have a good portion of it, then it's um, pretty easy to see 
the remaining tissue and make sure that you've removed it all. Pedro, it's interesting. We, we used to use vasopressin as well, but we have now, and I learned this from the Israelis who do this technique, um, we, we simply use Pitocin mm. now, mm. and, and we've, had, we've had good luck with that. And you get enough contractile effort from the uterus? Yes, yes. And, How do you administer the Pitocin? It, it's intravenously, oh, just, as, just as, Usually as you would. Usually postpartum, yeah. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's, it's been very good for us. And the other thing we never do is we never use Cytotec mm. in these cases. Mm-hmm. Why? So... We just find that, that because, again, uh, we don't want to have something happen during the middle of the night. Sure, we, you don't want them really to start to expel the, the pregnancy. We want yes. the advantage of being able to go in and have that tissue for identification mm-hmm. and, and best visualization. You mentioned, Katie, that you inject vasopressin. Mm-hmm. You start using your tissue morselator yes. to, to resect the sac. I've read a lot about stopping there at that point and doing embryoscopy, where you're actually evaluating mm-hmm. the morphologic appearance of the fetus. Right. Chuck, tell me a little bit more about what the value added there is for particularly the IVF patient who's yeah. experiencing euploid losses. Yeah, that's, a, that's in, interestingly, PHO, that's how we initially started into this. And that's what, what our pa- well, one of our papers was in, in JMIG was, was to talk about the fact that it gives us the advantage of, of embryoscopy. And there have been a number of patients where we have seen limb problems, uh, where we have seen uh, uh, problems with the, with the head, with the cranium, et cetera, uh, where we can identify issues uh, and know in, in our consultation then with the patient, we have one more thing that we can discuss. I think this is so important, so important, and why, why we even do this with, with, with initial, with first losses, it, because it, it really helps us to identify how we're going to proceed. For example, if you have normal chromosomes and you have normal appearing, appearing fetus, then you have to be looking at other things. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure that there's not other things going on versus if you find someone who, who is genetically abnormal, you know where to, how to talk with that patient as well. And maybe that patient wants to consider PGT, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a good point. You know, we have these losses and I think embryoscopy is a great idea because that's been well described. Mm-hmm. Where perhaps 30% of people with chromosomally normal losses have morphologic abnormalities mm-hmm. with and detecting that, I think, is really gives you additional information counseling them. Powerful tool to tell the patient that we found out why this didn't work. This isn't still a black box of recurrent pregnancy loss. There's something that was going to preclude a normally developing pregnancy to continue. I think one of the issues that I think we have to clarify is what does a normal fetus look like at that time? Yeah, because that's hard to, like, mm-hmm. how do you identify if there's an abnormality? And I don't know that I get many the REIs have problems, see but, perfectly, yeah. I mean, you know, the really, really early fetus, it's really hard to discern if that is really morphologically right. normal or not. So I think that's something we have to you know, further clarify so we can identify markers of that. Very good point. I agree mm-hmm. with you. It's an opportunity for a fellow project put together <laughs> an, yes. an encyclopedia of images. Happy to. <laughs> well, it took me one year to start coming up with projects for fellows. <laughs> uh, but I think it's an opportunity to put together an online encyclopedia of images great of what normal and yeah. abnormal can look like and what some of these things mean. Um, mm-hmm. That'd be a cool project. Um, we've talked about how all these things go well, how to select patients, how to do the procedure. How do things go wrong with this technique? What are the pitfalls here and how do you triage them? Well, you mentioned the fact of, of fluid overload. 
that's always something. The, the two things that, that we deal with are fluid overload and visualization. Um, and both of you mentioned that uh, each thing. Uh, sometimes you do have a red field. What I have found in these cases, if, if there is, if, if, if the visualization is obscure, is, is to go ahead and bring that, the hysteroscope closer to the area that, that you seem to be get better magnification, better visualization. From a standpoint of fluid, we've already talked about some of the things that uh, vasopressin, mm -hmm. uh, pitocin. Uh, we do these, this is the one case in the office where I actually use a fluid management system. So I am sure of of what my fluid is doing and, and I can really uh, get the pressures that I want. Mm -hmm. So that is, is, is very another important area that I've found. Is there well. a sweet spot for distension pressure here for these cases? I would love to keep it below 100. I love to have it in the range of about 80. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard though because you know, the visibility. Yes. Right? And you know, the getting close to the tissue is key. I sort of feel like we're, you know, doing this by braille, where you walk along the wall until you see something that's abnormal. Mm -hmm. That's what you can address. But it's key get getting up close. The other thing we've added is, even though we're directly visualizing, mm -hmm. we use ultrasound guidance yeah. mm -hmm. as well yeah. to ensure complete evacuation, to make sure you're in the right spot. Exactly. Exactly, and we found it's very, very helpful where I think I'm done and I really am looking and, and my ultrasonographer says, yeah, It's still pretty echogenic the over there. <laughs> go to your left. But that also necessitates having a good ultrasound yes. in the operating room, which many places struggle yep. with, yeah. and having someone who actually knows what they're doing mm -hmm. and not just the second-year resident who's there for looking at right. the case. Mm -hmm. So you need to have a good ultrasonographer and, a good, and good equipment to mm -hmm. accurately visualize what's going on. It's, Some people, it's a commitment. Tough. You're right. Yeah. It's a commitment to do these. It sounds like your setup is you have that techniques that yes. right there. Yeah. yeah. So from a lot of people in the hospital, it's like, okay, which OR I'm in and where are we mm -hmm. going to mm -hmm. you know. More of a That's oftentimes the problem yeah. when we end up doing the larger ones yeah. in, in the hospital. Yeah. Then you're stuck with a less like, expert team. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, the old ultrasound from the labor floor. Yes. Yeah. So you roll over. The Soviet right? one. Just, uh, the Soviet Soviet one. one. <laughs> like, like, you know, the snowstorm pattern. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um... We don't talk enough about complications or when this hasn't gone well for us. In your guys' experience doing these cases, can you think about a case where you learned something that kind of changed your approach or your technique or kind of a, an important point for the listeners who are thinking about doing this but are worried about being able to manage a complication when this doesn't go well? Well, my, my case I've had, early on I had cases with fluid overload. Mm -hmm. and uh, And I was... I, I was a little bit too aggressive in terms of hell-bent on completing, completing the, the task. Mm -hmm. um, we do have suction in, in our office. I mean, we really have set this up so that we have that availability should, should something go wrong. You need to and, pivot and complete the mm -hmm. procedure with bleeding. And we've had, we've had a couple patients where we've, we, that by necessity we had to do that. But that's been really our, our major complications, fluid overload. Yeah. Katie, in your experience at UH, any bleeding, that's kind of the yeah. thing that I always worry about. If I get into trouble and I'm using a tissue morselator and vasopressin's not cutting it, 
yeah, that's Chuck's right. You have right, to you complete pivot. the DNC and, and evacuate. Right. So the only complication, even if you can call it that, would be bleeding that I can think of. And in, again, you just pivot to your section of DNC. You have that as a backup. And what about post-operative care for these patients? Are they receiving anything for adhesion prevention? Are they receiving estrogen in your practice? Are they getting an interval hysteroscopy or an SIS to make sure it looks good? Or do you feel pretty confident that if you do it this way, chances of needing additional evaluations pretty small? We follow up all our patients once, once they have their HCG falls to zero and, and they've had a period. We follow everyone up with the saline. And I'll be honest, we have had some patients with, with retained. It's little, it's a small amount of tissue that we easily manage, but um, that we have not seen adhesions. We have not seen adhesions, but we have seen a few patients with retained. My concerns with using the tissue morselator for these procedures is aggressively attacking the endometrium. Because I think if you go through the basal layer of endometrium, Aggressively, I think you're going to have a nidus for adhesion formation. And if a lot of these patients happen to be hypoestrogenic mm-hmm. post-procedure, I think they're at risk of having that happen. So, you know, I think there's something to be said for too aggressively getting things off, getting every little piece off the endometrium, because I think mm-hmm. that tissue morselator is more right. harmful than we actually... The, the, way, the way that I've gotten around that, and when I teach the technique, I say differently than when you're taking a polyp or a fibroid where you're taught to put it on the tissue. You put it just above the tissue, and Let the tissue come comes mm-hmm. up to you. Or even right. on the side. Or the side, mm-hmm. exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Coming in on the side versus mm-hmm. versus on the tissue. You just want to get the tissue off that. Right. Top layer. Separate. It's like you know Velcro. You open mm-hmm. it up and it'll be fine. But but I think that that's you know you know as, as I say to the the fellows like we don't have to go to China. Right? <laughs> <laughs> can stop now. But I think that you know being being aware of the normal endometrium and being respectful of that is really critical to prevent adhesion. Pitcher, another thing that you have to tell the patient, in my experience, again, is that expect you can expect a potentially heavy bleed mm-hmm. because you're only evacuating that small area. The rest you're of the decidua is still right. there. The decidua is still there. Mm-hmm. Have you had issues where they pass a decidual cast because so much of it is still there and they're starting to have this kind of contractile Never had experience. a cast, but I have had a couple patients that's really have heavy, mm. heavy post-op bleeding. It's an important SCG counseling point. SCG goes mm-hmm. down, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point, because you're not taking everything out. Right? right. But in a way, that's kind of nice knowing, okay, we didn't denude all the endometrium, and there's right. enough left there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. I always worry when after a DNC, people are like, hey, I had no bleeding. Like, oh, Ooh. No, right? yeah. A period hasn't come in six weeks. That's <laughs> normal, right? <laughs> And I, I turned that negative into a positive. I, <laughs> that's the old practitioner in me. <laughs> bleeding is your uterus telling us it's fine. Yes, it's healing well. well. Right. We like this. That's one way to make the REI happy. Yeah, like, I'm so glad. This is really good. Guys, this has been a really awesome discussion. I hope that there are people listening that are interested in utilizing this technique. Um, and if you had to point them towards a resource, is there a paper, a video, something you thought was helpful for you when you were trying to figure out how to do this? 
Chuck, I know you've published quite a bit on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie, you got to put together some videos and some photos for us on, last, on embryos. Yes, I will do that. Um, but last year, actually, our group um, had a video here at ASRM um, outlining the technique. So I'm sure that's searchable. That's great. Yeah. And you certainly can go back to past uh, AAGL postgraduate courses on uh, fertility with that Rebecca mm-hmm. and I did that, that where we outlined the technique as well. Fabulous. Perfect. Well, thanks everybody for your time during a busy ASRM. We'll see each other at the AGL. Thanks yeah, for being we here. Will. Thanks, yeah, we Pietro. Will. Sounds good. Thanks, Pietro. Thanks, man. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Thank you.